Welcome to Tech Support, a podcast of the Mount Juliet Church of Christ where we encourage and equip people to interact with the biblical text. We are your hosts, Tim Martin and Brian LeMasters. As we conclude our first episode, What Might Be Different, we wanted to have a Q&A session where we looked over some of your questions that you've sent in to us and just kind of further discuss some of the topics that we had. As we jump into this today, uh, we want to remind you that we're always open to hearing your feedback and your questions. So make sure to, to email us, let us know maybe some future topics as well that you may want us to study uh, down the road. Tim, our first question that we're going to look at, I'm going to read part of it here. It says, why do we assume congregations are to be autonomous when in Acts 15, the elders at Antioch sent back to the mother church in quotations in Jerusalem for direction? Would this not be an example of a distant leadership over all the scattered congregations? Okay. When we think about that, let's go back and kind of review a little bit uh, that situation. At the end of Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas have come back uh, to Antioch, and as we know, part of their mission to go to Gentiles. Uh, there's this issue that we frequently see brought up in scriptures about whether or not Gentile converts to Christianity uh, should be circumcised. Uh, and so we will read here at the beginning of Acts chapter 15, uh, there's some brothers that come from Judea. Uh, they kind of raise a stink in Antioch about this situation, and then we'll kind of see how the leadership in Antioch reacts, uh, and that will kind of help us as we kind of briefly go through Acts 15. We obviously invite our readers to look through the entire chapter, uh, but we're going to kind of jump over some of the responses or uh, paraphrase uh, how the apostles and elders reacted there, and then kind of think through logically what that means as far as any connection to the leadership at Antioch uh, versus them just being a source of doctrinal information uh, and, and inspired knowledge. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 15 in verse Acts. I'm reading, uh, excuse me, in chapter 15, in verse 1 uh, in Acts, I'm reading from the ESV translation. But some man came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And so here we have that the leadership in Antioch, apparently some guys from Judea come up. They are saying, hey, they're teaching there in Antioch that, hey, these Gentiles are being saved. They've got to be circumcised. Uh, and Paul and Barnabas, you know, uh, perhaps with the authority they have, the inspiration they have, we know they've been doing inspired preaching. They may know better. Uh, and they're making a debate with them. But the leadership in Antioch says, I tell you what, let's do. There's some disagreement here. Let's let's go and, and take from the knowledge of the apostles. Uh, we see in this in this chapter that Peter speaks. James, the brother of Jesus, speaks uh, on this matter when they go down and ask him. So they're going to solicit uh, information from uh, the wisdom of these elders and apostles uh, that are there uh, when they go down and see them. Yeah, I think it's interesting that it looks like Paul and Barnabas are on the same page and that they don't question what they should be teaching, but it seems like 
when these other people came and questioned it, then the people in the congregation, they were like, uh, I don't know about this, which this would be a very foreign thing to them. And something that we see the early church wrestle with a lot is what does that look like to have the Jews be in God's people? And then you're going to bring the Gentiles into that. What does that mean for all the things the Jews at one time thought this is how they made uh, themselves righteous? So this ends up being a huge issue within early Christianity that we see in multiple uh, texts and passages here of what does that look like for Jews to stop doing what they were doing and bring Gentiles in. Yeah, and think about, well, we have the book of Galatians deals with that. Paul deals with that in the book of Romans. And it's not just circumcision, perhaps yeah. dietary laws, Sabbath keeping, all the things. And we have to keep in mind that this is something they've been doing uh, even before the law, even before the giving of Torah at Sinai. Abraham was commanded to circumcise his child. And so this is at least, you know, this is knocking on the door being 2,000 years old uh, by the time we get here. Uh, do you want to comment like on Peter and James's response there? You want me to comment on that? or? Uh, yeah, go ahead. I just think ultimately the question is answered. Uh, Peter kind of gives his case to be like, hey, we're really going to put a yoke on these people that we weren't able to bear. We did. We weren't able to keep God's uh, teachings and instructions in, 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 in the Torah. Uh, perfectly, and we're going to put this on themselves, and there's some discussion amongst all of them, and they eventually come out and say, our decision is that there's no reason for the Gentiles to be circumcised. There is some instruction given about uh, not eating meat sacrificed to idols and taking care of the poor and some other things, and, and they dispatch back uh, the, a letter to the church in Antioch as a response, and also I think they send some delegates uh, with them. It, it seems here in 22, for example, in Acts 15, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, the ones in Jerusalem, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And he sent Eudas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. Uh, and then they, they quote the letter, which is essentially repeating what James said uh, out loud. Uh, and we think about, well, they sent back a letter and they sent back witnesses to authenticate that decision and explain what went on. And so it's going to be inarguable when they get back to Antioch that the, the, the people in the in Jerusalem said these things, and they made this decision, uh, and we're going to respect that. Uh, and we see that when they get back to Antioch, as we skip down to verse 30, uh, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, the one we were talking about. And when they had read it, they rejoiced uh, because of its encouragement. Uh, and they go on and talk about Judas and Silas. Well, this is where we're introduced to Silas, who eventually go, uh, with Paul on his next missionary journey. And so th it's interesting that this this word is received with respect and excitement. They're encouraged by it. And so they obviously recognize, okay, this is a decision that was made by the authority uh, of the disciples there. And so I think I know why they accepted that, and I think I know the reason they had to do that. But I'm curious, what are you, what are you thinking? Well, before I jump into that, I do want to know, I'm curious what the church makeup was in Jerusalem, because you have Paul and Barnabas that are welcoming the Gentiles in. This becomes a question. They take it back to Jerusalem. It doesn't seem like it was a debate among Jerusalem at the time as an issue they were handling. Is it because the Gentiles that you had that were believers had already converted to Judaism first before they became Christians, or they just were going along with it? No one questioned it. So I'm just curious. Um, I wish I knew kind of what yeah, that makeup was. We don't know. One would assume... I know most scholars would say that all the converts to Christianity, at least in Palestine, for the first five to ten years of Christianity, were all either Jews or proselytes. 
which is, that's what we see on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. So if you're a Jew, an ethnic Jew, and if you're a proselyte, you've been circumcised. And so you every, define that for people? A proselyte would be somebody who was born a, an ethnic Gentile. And that, that word just means nations. So essentially an ethnic Jew and then everybody else on the planet uh, is covered by Gentiles. They have converted and say, hey, I want to convert to the religion of the Jews. I'll, be, I'll follow Torah. I'll do all those things. That's different from a God-fearer. Uh, like we might talk about Cornelius, yeah. uh, who may respect God and want to worship God and believe in God, but he hasn't committed to keeping, he hasn't become a bar mitzvah, the son of the commandments. He hasn't decided, okay, I'm going to go and, and follow all those rules uh, that are contained in the Torah and the Bible. And so there's a little bit of difference between it. But so if you were a proselyte, you would say you're essentially believing everything and doing everything the Jews believe. Yeah. So Looking at this question, one thing that we have to keep in mind is we now have the authority of Scripture before us now. Like, our elders here are not determining doctrine. They're making sure we follow the doctrine of Scripture. So that's important to note because at this time you had the authority of the elders and they're still figuring out what does it look like to be a Christian and what is they had the inspired preaching and teachings. And obviously letters were being written shortly you know at some point where there's dialogue where paul's going to start talking to different like churches and things like that but right now the authority lies within those apostles so to me it makes sense on this discussion that they had or question to make sure hey are we doing this right let's go back to the apostles and just make sure we understand this so thoughts on that tim well you know there's no canonical new testament there won't be a a fixed agreed upon canonical new testament for some centuries but what we what we don't have probably maybe even Paul's writings yet. Uh, some argue between I think Galatians and the the letters to Thessalonica as being his earliest correspondence. Well, he hasn't even been to Thessalonica yet. Uh, when we're at this scene right here, he's just gone throughout Asia Minor. So maybe and may not be as known either. You know, that's we right. think of Paul as this great teacher and this pillar of the church, but we're still early on in Acts. Like yeah, so. it may be that some of the content of the book of Galatians, for example, when he relates Peter coming up from Jerusalem, and then when the brothers from Jerusalem come up, he won't sit and eat with the Gentiles, that he rebukes them for that. Well, that would tell me that whenever that happened, I would think this council decision hasn't been made yet, or else Peter would say, I can eat with Gentiles, and nobody yeah. can say anything about it. But they don't have what you said is so good that we are accustomed to having luxury of saying, okay, Here's a doctrinal or theological question, just like Paul and Barnabas were dealing with and the people in Antioch. Let's turn to the New Testament and let's study and let's look and let's look across the width and breadth of 27 books uh, and even maybe possibly having a reference back to some things in the Old Testament uh, if it's related to that. And having all that laying in your lap, these Christians didn't have that. And so what's the source of their doctrine? It's going to be the apostles, especially this early on. And we even know that Paul, I think when if you look at Second Corinthians, for example, there's a lot of, and, and some of his other writings are like, why am I not equal to the apostles? You know, because Paul was not one of the 12. He wasn't one of the people that traveled with Jesus. So I can see where Paul's authority might be questioned a little bit. It gets questioned in other places as well. But boy, when you go back to the apostles in Jerusalem, that's like the buck stops here. That, that, that's where they're going to go to. So I think that's what they were doing but they weren't looking for them to shepherd that congregation in Antioch. Yes, yeah. The leaders there made the decision to send Paul and Barnabas, and the leaders received their decision back and said, okay, we have a doctrinal answer here now, and they continue to shepherd the flock and teach in that way and send out missionaries or whatever they're going to do. 
Yeah, and I think that's important to to separate those two things of, hey, we're trying to figure out this doctrine, this teaching, how we should function, and the shepherding and carrying out in the local uh, congregation and stuff. So, no, I think that's very important. Today, we see a difference between, I would say, some gatherings of Christians. So there's some denominations that they will have a council or this other type of governing body that will see themselves as being equal to Scripture, or they will make an interpretive decision for everybody under that umbrella. Mm-hmm. And that's just not how we function here. Like, that governing body is Scripture. Like, there's no one else that has equal weight to that today or can say, hey, this is how we carry it out for hundreds of years, but now the church is going to do X, Y, and Z instead. So any extra thoughts on, on that? No, what we have is, you know, and, and every different group of elders in different churches, even amongst restorationists, uh, may see different parts of Scripture and interpret them differently, which that's okay. Uh, it's one of the reasons I think that, that elders make a decision. Our elders worry about the Mount Jewish Church of Christ. They don't need to be worry about the Church of Christ in Arkansas or Church of Christ five miles down the road. They've got this one to worry about. They, they read the Bible. They study it. They do their diligence. They pray. And they say, hey, at best we can determine, and, and we look throughout even you know church history and say, what was the doctrine on this thing? And they make that decision. We don't have to have a council somewhere to do that. We've got the revealed New Testament. Now, I certainly don't mean that disrespectfully to those, which is really probably the bulk of the people who call themselves Christians on this planet. Their tr- church tradition does have either an apostolic authority figure in it uh, or some sort of council, uh, and and that also exists even in what we might call uh, you know American Christianity and denominational Christianity. I don't particularly like that word, but uh, there are uh, church traditions that have that as well, uh, and they send preachers to places. They kind of manage employees and uh, and make those decisions. But we have the New Testament, and we have the ability to read it in our own language. And we've got a lot of people, trained professionals, who can help us to understand what it means. And that's just something that these guys in Antioch didn't have the luxury of having uh, beyond just inspired preaching. It, it would be so amazing just to kind of understand how, because uh, we're not given that much information. There's a lot of assumptions about people everywhere being able to speak in tongues, people everywhere being able to prophesy, everywhere having inspired preaching. Uh, you know, How did the Romans, when we think about church in Rome that had not even been visited by Paul or anybody yet, we're not even exactly sure their origins, maybe Pentecost, but what were they teaching there? It'd just be so amazing to know what they do. I have to believe there's some sort of level of supernatural inspiration in their, you know, in the people that were preaching and teaching there. But man, it'd just be interesting to know the content of those sermons. So I mean, that's kind of yeah. a little bit of a side and Another side comment, just because the church is autonomous, it doesn't mean there's never interaction among right. different congregations. Like we see that in scripture where aid is sent to others that are struggling and so forth, but it just falls on the authority. I liked in her question, she also gave some of her thoughts and I want to read this because I thought she said it really well, but um, she said, I assume they sent for direction on circumcision because the question of circumcision, because they need guidance from inspired apostles in these earliest days of Christianity. So right on, I I definitely agreed with her thoughts and and her response to her own question that she kind of answered. Yeah, she did a good job. We should just invite her to come. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> All right, uh, let's move to our second question. This says, um, they're quoting you, Tim, which is always dangerous. That's right. It says, Tim said, I don't need the book of Acts to prove Christians took the Lord's Supper. What writings were you referring to? 
Okay, yeah, I went back and listened to that after we got this question. I thought, well, I thought we mentioned some things. Uh, but, you know, I just think about a couple of specific things. We, certainly we could refer to 1 Corinthians 11 outside the book of Acts. But when I was talking, I want to go back and listen to the context. Uh, I always want to take my instruction from the New Testament, whether it's in, by command or example or uh, in looking at this. So we, we definitely see in Acts and also in 1 Corinthians 11 that early Christians were taken. Well, that's only in a couple of locations. And for example, 1 Corinthians 11. What I also like to do is say very early on in Christianity were Christians in other locations seeming to do that. And so some of the writings I was referring to were non-canonical writings or writings of early Christianity. Uh, a couple of examples, the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve, which is dated by many to either late first century or early second century. There's some disagreement about that. Uh, it also has teachings in about baptism, that it talks about the Lord's Supper uh, and, and taking it in, in proper ways to do that. And then I think about the writings of Justin in the middle of the second century. He refers to, and we quoted, I think, a passage from him about who's supposed to partake uh, in the Lord's Supper. And so uh, here we are. Justin is, I think, in Rome when he writes. And then we don't know where exactly where the Didache is written, uh, but possibly somewhere around Palestine. But we see it seems to be pretty normal in the church. So that's what I meant. I meant to say that I have extra canonical testimony that the taking of the Lord's Supper was something early Christians did. And then I have also 1 Corinthians 11. Yeah, and it wasn't something that was debated. It was just no, I don't a see practice that. that was assumed as That's right. normal custom and something the church did. Um, very good. We'll jump on to our third question here. Uh, the question says, I know we are different than uh, some other churches, and we see those distinctions in the podcast uh, that we're doing right now in this series. The question is, at what point does our line of fellowship have to be drawn are people who practice different things still my brothers and sisters in Christ? This is a great question. Uh, and in my answer, I'm going to share, I guess, some of my personal thoughts as well. Because not saying that we're not governed by Scripture when it comes to this, but on the practical side of how I see this carried out, there's people that I respect who draw that line in different places. And it's, I'm not saying it's just a matter of opinion, but like, on how we carry that out, I'm not saying it's always crystal clear of exactly in every situation what that should look like. But <laughs> some verses that I think at least help my guidance is I think of 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to flip over there real quick. In 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it reads, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. I'm going to keep going on in the text talking about how we've all sinned and what to do about confessing that sin. But when I think of fellowship, this is one of the first passages that popped into my mind, that through our salvation in Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with all believers that have received that. So in some contexts, you talk about fellowship with the local congregation, especially when you think of passages where it talks about like disfellowshipping or using a distancing of somebody else to try to get them to repent of their sins. That's always in the local congregation of like how to handle that. But there's also this fellowship that is of the universal church. And when I think about where I draw the line of fellowship with different things, to me, I never want to think that I know the mind of God. 
um, because I am never the smartest guy in the room. And I want to be cautious when I make judgments about people because I think I can have clarity about my own salvation. Like I can read the text and come to know, yes, if I've done these things and I'm pursuing Jesus, I have confidence in my salvation. It's hard for me to have confidence about other people's salvation. And you and I talked about this because I don't know the heart of other people. Like outwardly, somebody could go to worship every time the doors are open and present this persona of them being this faithful Christian. And they may be dead on the inside. They may never pray or never study the Bible or living a life of sin and, and not really caring what God says. And it's all a fake thing. And I've been surprised at different times in my life by different individuals. So it's hard for me to sit back and be like, oh, I can, I can make all these judgments because no one can other than who God is. With that said, I've also, as a teacher, had to have difficult conversations with people. And it breaks my heart to think back to hard conversations where I've had to look people in the eyes and say, I don't believe that you are saved and say, I, you need to make these changes to be right with God. And I feel the weight of that responsibility as a minister to guide people closer to God. So for me, where I draw that line of fellowship is if somebody has been baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, I can have confidence that they've been added to the church. When I think of Acts 2, 47, it talks about God added to their number that day, those who were saved because they had committed their lives to Jesus and baptism. Their sins were washed away. To me, that's where my confidence comes in when I think of fellowship. Now, I also think, well, not, not think, I also know grace gets applied to his believers. I, There's no way I have everything figured out, that I'm everything that I think I understand from scripture, that I'm batting a thousand. But I know that the grace of God, that it's not about my righteousness, but that I can be faithful to him without being perfect. So there may be situations where I wouldn't worship with somebody. Maybe we have a under, different understanding of worship or, oh, there's things my wife and I, we don't see eye to eye on everything of how everything should be interpreted or carried out, but clearly I still have spiritual fellowship with her. So I don't think I have to see eye to eye on every single topic with somebody to have fellowship with them or even to be comfortable worshiping with that person. So to me, I see fellowship at the outer core that I can have confidence in who has salvation. Now, that's not me saying I know exactly how everything's going to play out on judgment on things, but to me, that's where I draw that line. And then when it comes to the idea of like worship fellowship, it would have to be people that I can worship with and stuff without breaking my conscience. To me, I'll keep rattling off here for a little bit. To me, there's tension in scripture between Christians who are confused about things when I think of like, the Christians in Corinth, they did not have everything figured out. And Paul's having to correct them on major things like the Lord's Supper that they were messing up on. So what, where does the line of fellowship fall within a believer, somebody who's pursuing God, but they're confused about things versus a false teacher? When I think back to like 1 John, he talks about, hey, there are people that are false teachers. Like you need to avoid them and not let them in your fellowship. In the background, it looks like there are battling some false teachings that these people at one time maybe were part of their fellowship and they no longer are. I know for me, when I see that, a lot of times those are core principles of Christianity. Like 
the deity of Christ and understanding of sin and some of those things. So I personally, if I'm just being honest, struggle sometimes of where does those two principles apply today on Christians who are confused. We don't see eye to eye about some things that I think God wants us to practice or to have these things versus a false teacher. I know I threw a lot out there, Tim. Anything you want to add to on that? Sorry, I fell asleep. <laughs> what is I'm catching up to you a little bit? Uh, no, I, it's one of those things. I, I think going back to, yeah, it is defining fellowship. I think you did a good job on that. In, in our spiritual universal sense of the church, I, I don't admit or expel people from that. I don't have that authority. I will never declare whether someone is part of that or not. Uh, other than when I, if somebody came to me that didn't believe in God, didn't believe in the Bible, didn't believe in Jesus, was living a, a life of terrible moral and ethical uh, misbehavior, and they asked me, do you think I'm going to get into heaven? I would be like, not based on what you're telling me and what I understand, because you don't believe in anything of that nature. And it makes me think about you know, that fellowship. But now I wouldn't declare anybody in this congregation, even people that I've known for decades, and say, you're definitely going to heaven or you're definitely going to hell. Uh, one of our elders, when I was hired, said, you know, in ministry, you're going to see some of the dark underbelly of the church. And you do wind up finding out things about people who you thought were rock solid and what's going on behind the scenes uh, because of the devil attacking them or the decisions that they're making or because they're hypocrites. Their life is not what it seems on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday afternoon uh, or Wednesday evening. And that's challenging. And so, but I still wouldn't declare whether or not I have their members of the church or not. I wouldn't declare that about any soul on this planet um, unless they came to me and just said they didn't believe at all. Or I know that they are completely apart from the gospel, and that's the people I need to to share the gospel with and talk to. Somebody asked me what I believe I needed to do to be cleansed of my sin and added to the church. I will share with them what we've talked about in this series uh, on baptism. And obviously this is a difference to me in my personal feeling, because I have a lot of family members. I don't come from a background of being in, in the restorationist movement my entire life. I know some God-fearing, benevolent, uh, very, very moral and ethical Christian-type people that are not members of the Church of Christ or of any restorationist movement. Uh, and if I look across them, the, their, their Christian traditions give billions of dollars towards mission work and philanthropy and feeding people and having orphanages and taking care of people all over the world and disaster relief and all those good things that reflect the teachings of Jesus. I'm never going to declare what their destiny is going to be on Judgment Day. I'm simply never going to do that. I will share with them what I have confidence in. I think it's a good term that you used. I don't know how God's going to sort that out. You may not be batting a thousand. I'm going to be pretty happy if I'm batting 500 on my interpretation of the scriptures uh, because it, it is there are just a lot of challenges to that. Uh, I think a lot of people within the restoration movement one day are going to find out there's things that they were wrong about. But they weren't wrong because they didn't care or because they didn't study or they, because they didn't want to desire to know what God was. It's just that the scriptures can be challenging to interpret. And when I think about the first century context, we have to look at those any times we apply uh, the same principles today. For example, you mentioned disfellowship, uh, which most frequently people would reference 1 Corinthians 5. But we have to remember that church discipline today, if we pattern it exactly after that pattern, there's something it would accomplish and something it wouldn't accomplish. We do not live in an honor-shame society where expelling someone from your group is going to bring shame on them and the surrounding society 
and encourage them to repent and get back to be part of their group uh, because being part of a group was very important uh, and being kicked out of one was very shameful. Uh, on the So it doesn't function exactly the same now. You just fellowship somebody now, they're just going to go down the street to a different church. However, it does do what I think is the principal thing is it keeps yeast from ruining the whole loaf. Uh, and that is the, the, and that's something we don't do. We let individuals take uh, precedent over the congregation uh, a lot of times. That's just the American way of doing things. But I, I think when we look at false teachers, we're not dealing with a time in the first century where there were dozens and dozens of different Christian traditions. You really were either an unbeliever or an unbeliever. Now, we do see developing uh, teachings, uh, especially primarily in the New Testament, about keeping the things of Judaism is the primarily thing we see. We do see, for example, uh, in John's writings, uh, the beginning Gnosticism didn't exist in the first century, but it becomes kind of this larger thing uh, in second, third century writings and, and beliefs. But early on, some people call it proto-Gnosticism, which I can't even spell that word. But the early belief in, in Docetism, where we think about, well, it just doesn't equate in my mind that Jesus can be 100% divine and 100% human. I can't figure out that out in my mind now, 2,000 years later. And so they would declare maybe Jesus is 100% human. He became God for part-time or Jesus was 100% divine, so he couldn't have been crucified on a cross, and all those issues. We're dealing with false teachings and people, like John says, that are denying that Jesus was the Son of God. That is not what people in other Christian traditions are doing. They are not denying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They're not denying that the Word of God is, the Bible is the Word of God. They're not denying the existence uh, of Yahweh. They're not ex denying that he created the entire universe. They're not denying, uh, denying that Jesus died on a cross and was resurrected from the dead, and he's the only way to get to God. They're just different in how they're going to make that connection. Uh, and there's disagreement amongst everybody about how to do that. And so I think there's a little bit of a difference in false teaching now, what we might call false teaching, to lump people in that same bucket. It's what we would call people who are perverting the gospel away from something completely different, uh, from saying Jesus isn't the Son of God. That's a big difference. Uh, or, or Jesus wasn't divine, or, or Jesus wasn't human. You know, or, or you have to be circumcised to be saved. You know, those are really wholesale different teachings, and we see Christians struggle with it, uh, with our understanding. Oh, should I be circumcised? Should I not be circumcised? And I can see where they could be confused uh, on that. But it, when I think about fellowship, the things that you mentioned, I will not withhold my personal fellowship, meaning eating with people, friendships with people, people who believe in God people who believe in Jesus Christ and his person and work and what he did to save us, believe the Bible is the word of God, and are trying to obey the moral and ethical teachings of the Bible, I don't have any problem keeping personal fellowship with them. I'm not saying whether or not they're going to heaven. I'm not saying whether or not they're going to hell. But I can think of a lot worse people that I could hang around than people of that nature. Because uh, I wouldn't have any friends outside just this congregation if I think about that. I do agree that we have to be, our elders have a different responsibility on connections that this congregation may have with other groups who may not worship in the same way we do or may not have core beliefs about salvation uh, that they do. They have to be very cautious about it. They have a responsibility I don't have and will never have to do that and, and think about you know, how do people in church going to accept that. Uh, and so, you know, I know this congregation has sent people down to, to work at the rescue mission in Nashville, which is not a Church of Christ per se, quote unquote, work. But it's feeding hungry people, so it's okay that we do that. But it doesn't necessarily though that we hang a banner on the wall down there and says, 
at the Mount Jewish Church of Christ is giving money to this organization or whatever it may wind up being, or you know, just because a church member puts money in the Salvation Army can doesn't mean that they agree with the the, the theology of the Salvation Army, which is a religious group. So I think that term fellowship and how we handle those things are different from a corporate congregational perspective and a personal perspective. I know there's a lot of people who disagree with what I say, and maybe I'm biased because of my background in that, but I'm very cautious to put myself in the judgment seat of Christ. Yeah, no, it's bridging the, the these two worlds is difficult on this because to me, there's people that would never worship with somebody else. They wouldn't have that type of fellowship, but they don't shun them like we see in scripture, a false teacher. You know, like you wouldn't share a meal with that person or kids be on the same ball team. You know, like the shunning that we see in the first century doesn't get carried over today because it, it's just it's just hard to carry those two things over mm-hmm. for that type of a situation or whatever. So um, before we jump too, too far forward, Tim, just for clarity, I know you talked a lot about uh, not wanting to, to play the role of judge and stuff, but just so people don't misunderstand, you do think people can know and have confidence in their salvation as an individual, personally, though. You mean personally? Yeah, I absolutely believe that. I think we can know that. I think there's people that struggle a lot with that and have a lot of doubt about that. And I didn't want them to yeah, think yeah. they can't know. No, that that's right. I wouldn't mean that at all because I, I feel very confident in my salvation. I also have friends that are members of different Christian traditions than I am who are very confident about their salvation. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think you definitely can be. You know, each person having to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, I'm the only one responsible for my salvation. And um, I think you can be confident in that. Uh, And every person just has to work that out on their own. Like I said, if I'm asked what I believe, I'd be glad to tell people what that is. Uh, If I feel like somebody's caught up in a life of immorality and and apart from God, I I may share that more strongly uh, with them and encourage them that their destination is not good in, in doing that way but i uh we've got a, we've got about you know five billion people on this planet that don't believe in god don't believe in jesus and don't believe in the bible we've got plenty to do uh without going and and, and worrying too much about the folks who do believe in those things all right this next question is wrapped up in fellowship as well so i'll go ahead and throw it out there as we continue our thoughts here it says how can we build bridges when there seems to be so much division over issues like these these referring to the different things that we talked about in this series. Are we the problem? How can we be the solution? Or start out and say, I think we are the problem when we, any situation when we bring in arrogance to any conversation, any interaction with uh, other individuals, whether they're believers or not, thinking we got it all figured out and that that just never goes well. That, that never you end up having a debate where there's two individuals that are just trying to prove points and no one's really seeking after truth. To me, that's that's definitely part of the problem. I think building bridges as individuals and as a congregation looks differently. I think as an individual, I can build bridges by people in the way that I treat them, have an in- interest in their history, how they came across their different beliefs, how those have developed, and and truly seek to have a mutual understanding and believe they can offer me something about spiritual things and faith and understanding the scriptures and truly pursue truth together as opposed to always thinking this is a debate or I just have to prove uh, that that other person wrong. I feel the same way. When I first began to attend here at this congregation with my wife, now 
don't get me wrong. I, I in college, uh, I lived a life apart from God. I, I, and although I would tell you I believed in God, I, I could care less about Him, and I didn't want to obey Him, and I didn't go to church, and I uh, did a whole lot of moral and ethical things that that I'm not proud of. And so when I came back to church, it was coming back to something and that I had grown up doing uh, until I went away to college. And I, I remember coming here, and I remember you know I had not been really attended any Church of Christ other than what my wife and I had attended when she could drag me to it in college. But one of the things that I heard here, and it struck me, is a great deal of arrogance by some people, uh, not by many. And I let, I let, unfortunately, I let the words of a few and the loud mouths of a few keep me from really thinking about my salvation for a long time because then I became very standoffish. Mm-hmm. It was almost a cultish belief that we were that much smarter than everybody else, that everybody else in the world was an idiot when it came to interpreting the Bible. And I got thinking, man, I don't really think so. Uh, and I would hear them make comments in class that were just absurdly uh, wrong. Uh, but they would just had like a prejudice against that. And it took about three years for me to get past those few loudmouthed individuals uh, to the real true workers in the church, the people who are really not worried about that. They're more worried about saving souls and taking care of business and feeding hungry and helping out their brothers and sisters in Christ uh, and, and just quietly doing the Lord's work. When I saw that and I saw those teachers, uh, two of our elders I sat down and met with that I respect more than any other men on this planet just about, and I, I knew their heart was only concerned about my going to heaven. Uh, and I, I listened to what they had to say, and I realized that I had really never truly repented uh, and I had left God, even if I had as a young person, I had left all that behind uh, and had not asked God and, and not been baptized for the forgiveness of my sins and really had, had never been a Christian, even though maybe I'd gone forward as a child and said a sinner's prayer. And But I never changed, you know, and, and I really departed from it. And so when I got to sit down with those men and, and see their care for my soul, it put all that other you know, static and, and, and stuff in, in the background and let me know this is really a church who really truly wants to go find out what the Bible says and live by it. Uh, and that was a benefit, but it took a while. And I want people to realize that when you say those comments about other Christian traditions in a Bible class or in whatever you want to say, and you never know who's listening to that. And uh, we can't be arrogant. And, and that is one of the things that I saw. I think if you ask me, you know, 15, or I guess 25 years ago, what would be one word you would use to describe the Church of Christ? I would say arrogant, um, because they feel like they're the only ones who can interpret the Bible. Now, I know that truly in people's hearts of true Christians, they don't think that. They're very humble uh, in thinking through that. And so it would be helpful if we can build bridges. Look at all the things we agree on with other church traditions. Let's start there, and let's. there's some things we may just have to agree to disagree on, but None of us think we shouldn't take care of widows and orphans and feed the poor or feed the hungry uh, and go visit those in prison or go visit those who are in jail because Jesus Christ said, if you don't do that, you are going to go to hell. And, and that's the people that I worry about more uh, that I want to team up with. And so I'm not saying that we would make congregational connections to that. But, you know, when a tornado hits the community, it's okay to me that we work out in the field right beside other Christian traditions who are just trying to clean up people's yards and help people put their lives back together. Uh, and doing that. And so that 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 is a little bit different than what elders have to be mindful of on a corporate level. Yeah. I was at Fred Orman's lectureship this past week, and your words made me think of a quote that I wrote down um, by James Gardner. He said, we must be right about generosity before we can be heard about anything else. And I feel like that's correct. Like for you, it was, I want to see the purity of Christianity 
that desire to love other people and to sacrifice for other people and not the arrogance of, oh, my way is right. But it was once you saw that, then you were open to hearing and studying about other topics. Um, so, yeah, to me, that's that's one of the biggest barriers that we create sometimes is that arrogance, the unwillingness to to pursue and to listen to other people. There are some things that elders have to be mindful of for sure when it comes to as a church partnering with somebody else. Uh, at the end of the day, like we believe scripture teaches certain things and whether or not God carries out judgments in different ways or not, like we hold to certain truths and teachings and we don't want to come across as giving our stamp of approval to other congregations or other ways of teaching. And people think, oh, well, it doesn't matter if you do this or this, as long as you have good intention. Like we never want to create confusion on that or disrupt unity among our congregation as well. Uh, this is fellowships. One of those topics that I said at the very beginning, people have different applications to the scriptures that we see on where they draw those lines. So we have to prioritize unity as a church and also um, our ability to reach our community with the gospel of saying, hey, this is how you can come to know God, to be saved by, by Jesus and to live a life uh, pleasing to him. So you, it's very rare, I feel sometimes that we do these big projects with another church. We do sometimes, but I mean, we don't just always seek those out just because one, it's not always necessary, but number two, like you do give your stamp of approval to somebody else. So you need to make sure you guys are pretty unified when it comes to your teaching and stuff. Yeah. And I, you know, that can be no matter what the name is on the side of the building. Yes. Uh, yeah. In association with that. And our elders have to make decisions about that, even with people, but I would say under the restorationist umbrella, for sure, uh, there are things that we just might fundamentally disagree with. Um, yeah, not just the name of no, the not church. Just the name of the church is yeah. what they teach doesn't line up with early them. on in the restoration movement. I'm by no means a historian of the restoration movement, but there are those here that are, and people I've learned from. One of the biggest disagreements was about instrumental music, and I know that caused some division between churches of Christ, disciples of Christ, Christian church, uh, and so even some of the things we've talked about with within the restoration movement have not been agreed upon. The Holy Spirit's a thing uh, that a lot of people may disagree on uh, and things, but I, I do believe we, uh, you know, I, I always say people ask me about commentaries or listening to somebody speak or, or go, I listen to podcasts uh, by people outside of, of my tradition. Uh, and what I say is I, anybody that believes in God, believes in Jesus Christ, believes the Bible is the word of God, believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. I'll give them a fair hearing. I, I'll give them, a chance because I know there is passion about that and their belief, even though we may disagree on some tenets of scripture, uh, when there are, you know, when I go listen to people who are well-published and, and experts in their field, uh, and people who have, you know, a terminal degree in, in biblical studies, and we believe all those things, I will give them a fair hearing, uh, to be able to listen to, uh, also read things written by people who don't believe in God. So I can understand why they don't believe in God and why they don't believe in the Bible. Uh, because I think all too often we ignore that. Yeah, as we conclude, my final thought is just encouragement to you um, on this concept of fellowship to really study it. There's a lot of different text in the New Testament that talks about fellowship, truth, how we are to respond to different individuals. So I encourage you to pursue it because it's not a topic to be taken lightly because our fellowship with other believers um, matters a lot and how we interact and in our pursuit uh, to heaven and things like that. Tim, I know you just gave a closing thought. You got anything else you want to add? There? No, that's about all I can think of. I just, you know, we, we keep our nose to the grindstone, be busy about doing things and 
make personal decisions about who we're going to have associations and close relationships with. Uh, and those who choose to be elders in the, in the uh, churches, uh, they have some pretty heavy decisions to make to keep a hedge around uh, their congregation and protect them. Uh, and how those godly men see fit to do that, I'm fine with that. And if I don't like that, I can always go to a different congregation. But I, I respect the fact that that's what they're wanting to do, even if I don't always agree with every decision that they make. Yep. All right. Thank you for listening in this week. If you have questions or suggestions, please let us know by emailing us at podcast at To our fellow students of Scripture, thank you for joining us for tech support. We hope you will join us next week. This is a podcast of the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. You can find more personal growth resources like this one at mountjuliet.org resources. The Mount Juliet Church of Christ exists to glorify God and make disciples by helping people grow in Christ, love one another, and serve others. Thank you.